through the book of Joshua, and I've been encouraging people to read in the book of Joshua in preparation, but I did fair warn you that as we got closer to Easter, that there was going to be a few diversions from it, and today begins the first of those, um, as we have a sermon today called A Multiplicity of Betrayal, 
I got to caution you about two things before we get into this. The first one is, before we're through, I'm going to share with you a Greek word. I don't always do that. I don't always talk about the Greek, but these tests, these, the New Testament was written in the Greek language primarily, some Aramaic, um, even some Hebrew in there with Matthew. Um, but uh, the point is, I don't always get into the original language, but there's a reason why I'm going to do that today. And so I'll need you to bear with me when that time comes and show you. I'm going to show you something that you would not otherwise see. Um, because you're not looking at the original language, but it's there, uh, and then once we see it, you'll understand what I'm talking about, okay? And then the second thing is, at one point in time today, I'm going to say something that is caustic by its very nature. It is offensive to Christians, okay? And so when I say this, I'll try to cue in on it, but I guarantee you'll hear it, and you'll go, ooh, that, this, that kind of sits a little bit sour with me. And so I'm going to ask you now to listen to the whole sermon, not just that one line, okay? Because you need the rest of it to interpret the whole thing. And I, and believe me, I had this conversation with the Lord. In fact, I uh, just had this conversation with Nikki on the way here. I told her this was coming, and uh, Luella was there as well. And uh, as I had this conversation, I said, Lord, you really want me to say it that way? And he said, that's exactly how I want you to say it. So I will say it exactly that way, unless God says something different between now and then, which I don't anticipate to be the case. Um, and so if you are not listening to the whole sermon and listening to the whole of what God is trying to say, then when we get to that, that one point, if somebody goes later to on social media and blows me up because I said that, I will know you are not listening to the whole sermon. And for those who are tuning into the podcast, as we've gotten a lot of folks doing that now, we've got podcasts uh, from last year that have been listened to over 250 times. I know that isn't just y'all listening to it over and over again. Probably some of you have never listened to one, so uh, that's okay. That's, so some people are into that, some people aren't. Um, but that being said, I hope they listen to the whole thing and don't just skip to that point, because I can just see the enemy doing that. Like, let me click in the middle of the sermon. What did he just say? Oh, he's a blasphemer against God, or something like that. So hopefully that won't happen. So the whole thing. Put your thinking cap on, take your earbud out, and listen to the whole thing, all right? Now, that being said, I want to share with you a story. Uh, now we're getting into the meat of it. I'll share with you a story of something that happened in my life. Uh, I played one, almost two years of baseball back in the day uh, when I was in school. Uh, they call it peewee. And I was at that time, I was in no way ashamed to be associated with peewee baseball. Now I was kind of like, that's kind of a rough name. But back then, I was like, peewee baseball. Yeah, that's what we are. We're peewees. Uh, most kids would be like, don't call me that. But anyway, I uh, signed up for baseball, went out for it. Well, this is what happened. So many kids signed up for baseball that year that they had to have not one, but two baseball teams in, in Northwood of my age group. And so they're like, wow, we've got to have two baseball teams at age group. How are we going to sort the kids out? Oh, this is, makes perfect sense. What we'll do is we'll take all the really good kids and put them on one team. And then we'll take all the other kids that have never played before or we don't know if they're any good or not and put them on the other team. And so you're going to wind up with one team that has a shot at the All-Stars and one team that looks a little bit like the Bad News Bears. Guess which one I wound up on? Well, I had never played before, so I wound up on what was supposed to be the Bad News Bears team. And I say supposed to, give me a little foreshadowing of how this story ends. We went out, about 14 of us, and the coach called us out early. He had never coached baseball before. He called us out early while it was still rainy and nasty and cold outside, so we'd have been invited. If this was that year, we, we'd started practice by mid-March for the summer baseball season. <clears throat> we were practicing pop flies and basic fundamentals, and three kids came to the first practice not owning a baseball mitt, and they had to go buy one the following week after they found out what they were supposed to get, and that's the kind of team we were. And we practiced, and we practiced, and we practiced. And lo and behold, we started to become pretty good. We pulled together. There was nobody on the team that was cocky. Nobody on the team that insulted anybody else. Nobody on the team that was... Oh, you know, they knew they were the better player than anybody else. It wasn't like that. We were all, we all knew. We pretty much sucked. But we all started working together really hard. And we all pulled together. And um, I learned how to play outfield. And there were three other guys with us uh, that were playing the outfield. So there's only three positions in baseball. But we, we sort of split them up. And there were three other guys. And we all got pretty good at playing outfield. And we would run the whole game. We would run all the way. Like a right fielder would run all the way over to back up the center fielder. And you don't see that very much, but that's what our coach taught us to do. Say, if he misses the ball, I want you back there. And we, we had a midseason, we had a game where we had our, our worst pitcher on the team pitching, and he pitched a no-hitter. And it wasn't because they didn't connect with the ball. 
It was because every time somebody got the ball, every time there was a chance, he hit the ball. It never went to the out- infield. Or if it went to the infield, we still picked it up and threw him out at first. Or if it went in the outfield, it was deep and the, the fielder couldn't get to it. There was somebody behind him to catch it. We caught every ball. And we had probably 20, just amazing. It was, you know, there's only 27 plays. In a, well, actually, we won 21 plays. We were probably close to 20 plays. It just amazing uh, baseball. And he got to the end and goes, I got a no-hitter? How to do that? They were hitting the ball all the time. So, yeah, nobody ever got the first because everybody's catching the ball. So, late in the season, here comes that moment. They said, well, let's it's get close to tournament time. We need a little more practice. Let's have the two teams from Northwood play each other, the all-star team and the Bad News Bear team. And the all-star team coming out, and they're like, this is going to be great. We're going to love this. We're going to meet Mercy. I'm like, 25, 30 to nothing or whatever. It's going to be great, right? By the fourth inning, they had not scored, and we had scored once. Well, they started cracking on each other and making nasty comments about each other and everything else, and we didn't know what was going on. So there's a play where they, they had a runner, uh, they had a runner going to third base. They had a runner on second going to third, and this would have been the first time they could have scored. And the ball got hit into the outfield, the left fielder picked it up and made a beautiful throw <coughs> into third base. And the runners going to third base, coming in there, it's obviously going to be an out. But they did the, the our third baseman didn't get the touch the base out. He tagged the runner out instead. He stepped up in front of him. So this guy running third base thought he was going to be all big and bad. He's going to plow over our third baseman. And it went about like this, as if David tried to plow over Brother Tony Brister. That's how it went. He went, he went up, slam, he slammed the guy. And the guy who he tried his base helmet from batting flew off his head, and he went, bam, down, just like that. All of a sudden, their bench is cleared, and they're all running out there to beat up the third baseman. We, none of us had ever seen that before. We didn't know there was a bench is clear thing, right? So we didn't know that was a thing. So we're all like, what's going on? Well, they're going to beat him up. We better get over there. So we're all running over there, too. And, it's, and they stopped the game, and we never finished the game. Even though we were ahead. one nothing, and they had never scored. And they wouldn't let it go down in the scorebook, either, because they said that was a fluke. There's no way we could beat them. We played them again at the end of the season, and that game, they beat us like four to three, um, and they never caught, they never, they never cracked on each other or whatever. Well, after the after the came over, our guys were sitting on the bench. We were a little bit down in the dumps because we lost, and the coach was there. And their coach came over and he said this. He said, "Y'all are the rejects. Y'all were neglected. You were set aside because you hadn't played before or whatever." And he said, "And you're phenomenal." He said, "You're incredible. Not only do you play really well, but you got a really good attitude." And he said, and after that game that we played you before, I drilled my team. And for weeks, we, we, we worked extra practices and everything like that. And he said, and I told him, if you ever talk like that, I'd throw him off the team if it ever happened again, etc." And he said, the only reason we beat you today is because you made us better. I want you to bear that in mind as we look at this text today. It's short, and the sermon may be fairly short to the point, up until that point at which everybody goes, did he just say that? And then we'll see, okay, how it goes from there. All right, so grab your Bibles if you would. Maybe give me a hoot, a holler, amen, as we go to Luke chapter 22. Amen. All right, good stuff. Thank you very much. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now, uh, Jesus has already predicted that he would be betrayed. uh, And then uh, now we're going to see the scene where that is sort of set, if you will. And we're going to look at just a couple of really key points in here, I think, by the time we're done. 22, 1. From the book of Luke. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. All right, so that is a hugely loaded verse, is it not? What's going on? We're approaching the feast of Passover. What's that about? Well, this is celebrating the time when they were getting ready to come out of Egypt, when God passed over their firstborn and did not kill their firstborn, but killed the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, which God did because they sacrificed a blemish-free lamb and put the blood on the post of their house, marking their house as a house of God's people. And so then God passed over, the death angel is often called, uh, passed over and did not destroy the firstborn sons of the Israelites. And that's the final plague. That's the tenth plague. And it's the plague that marks the moment in time at which no matter what Pharaoh said or did, they were leaving. 
Okay? And so they're celebrating, they're getting ready to celebrate that. They celebrate as the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened means without yeast. So if you make bread without yeast, you get a sort of a crackery type thing. It would more, look more like a, a stiff taco shell, basically. And they made it that way because they were going to be leaving Egypt quickly, so they didn't have time for the bread to rise anyway. Right? And so they made unleavened bread that day. And so all the way forward to this day, they would celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, marking the time at which God spared their firstborn sons and sent them out of Egypt, brought them, if you will, out of Egypt. All right? So they're celebrating that feast. But notice, as they're about to celebrate that feast of the amazing grace of the incredible inclusion of God, of them into the kingdom of God, right? Their hearts and minds are on how they can get rid of Jesus. You see? They're not thinking about preparations for the Passover. They've got that nailed. They're not thinking about what they've got to buy or what they've got to do or where they're going to be. They've got that all figured out. They're not figured out the steps of what the, the dinner or the feast is going to be like. They've got, they know that. That's nailed. They've got that down verbatim. They're thinking about how they can arrest and get rid of Jesus. Isn't that funny? The grace of God displayed in the Passover, the grace of God displayed in Jesus, and this Passover will now be about destroying Jesus. That's what it's all about for them. The chief priests, that's the leaders of the people and the scribes. And when you put the chief priests and scribes together, you basically, it's oftentimes a reference to the Sanhedrin, which was the ruler of the Jewish people. The council that ruled them was thinking about how they could put Jesus to death. But, they were thinking about how can we do that because of the people. Because the people who should have been coming to Passover, should have been coming to the feast to celebrate the grace of God and how God had saved their people. What they're thinking about is they want to come and hear Jesus. Okay, And on the surface, that looks good. Except, if you remember, from Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to the disciples, after a lot of people left, he said, are you going to leave me too? And, they say, and the disciples are like, no, how, how can we leave you? You have the words of eternal life. We can't leave you. There's nowhere else to go. right? And Jesus said, who do they say that I am? They say, well, they say you might be Elijah or Jeremiah. Some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life after what after Herod put him to death. Or you might be one of the other prophets. That's what the people are thinking. And so that's insight into these people who are coming to the festival of Passover, supposedly to celebrate God, to give all worship and glory to God for what God did all the way back there. And they've been doing this every year, right? And they've got it nailed. They know the ritual. They know the steps. They've got all that nailed. And instead of coming to Passover, to celebrate Passover, to worship and honor God, they're coming to find out more about Jesus which would on the surface be good if they recognized that he was the Son of God, the Christ, and the salvation of men. But that's not what they think. They think he's John the Baptist arisen again, or a prophet, or Elijah, or one of those. Right? So they've misconstrued who Jesus is, and now are essentially their hearts are setting aside the Passover to come and gather around Jesus and hear the teachings of a prophet. And Jesus is not a prophet. I mean, he's a prophet, but he's not only a prophet. He's God in the flesh. So they missed the point of Jesus but make the Passover about Jesus. You follow? Okay. It's a mess, is what we have here. Now, the chief priests and the scribes are afraid to carry out their desires, which is to get rid of Jesus, because of the crowds that are gathering around misconstruing who Jesus was. And they figured that the crowds would cause a riot. <laughs> the Jewish people are known for riot. In fact, there's a, a standing ordinance in this time uh, that if there was another riot, there will be military response. It's, a, it's against the law in Roman society to have any uh, organized meeting with 12 or more people without specific permission from Caesar himself. <laughs> you ain't going to get that. So the, the armies could be called out for any riot, right? And Passover being an accepted religious thing, they were allowed to do that. But Caesar gave them permission to have the Passover feast. Passover feast. Now that's ironic, right? And yet, they were afraid of the people who were coming to the Passover because they didn't want it to become a gathering about resisting the arresting of Jesus because then there could be military punishment. So these are the factors of what's going on on the scene. Now verse 3 says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. Now Iscariot's his surname, and it just means 
the region that he was from. And Judas basically means uh, God will receive praise or God be praised. So his name is good, but his personality not so much. Okay. Now, real quick, I, I want to talk to you about Judas before we get off on this uh, tangent of thinking Judas was Judas was a bad guy and all that. Now, what we know Judas does is, is pretty horrible. He betrays, big word, he betrays Jesus. He hands Jesus over into the hands of the Sanhedrin. He arranges a time in which the crowds cannot protect Jesus. And real quick, on the side on that, does Jesus need the crowds to protect him? No. Does Jesus need his disciples to protect him? No. Probably his disciples could have protected him. In fact, what does he do? He tells them not to protect him. Right? And he says, uh, when Peter draws a sword and strikes the temple servant, he says, no, 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 live by the sword, die by the sword. You know, so we're not, that's not where we're at today. And he heals the servant, and, and it, but he did tell them to have the swords available in the first place so that they could not use them, thereby showing in what they were truly trusting in. Right? Okay, now all that's back on task here. So Judas is a, does a pretty bad thing. He betrays them. But has Judas been with the disciples all along? By, by the way, who called Judas to be a disciple? Jesus, Sunday school answer. Jesus called Jesus to be a disciple. Why would Jesus call a horrible person to be a disciple? Okay, now when the disciples were sent out two by two, did Judas go? Well, it was in the statement, right? All 12 of them went. How many of them went? All 12 of them. In how many pairs? If there was just, count just the 12, there were more that went that day. But if you count just the 12, it was six pairs of two. Now, back when I was a manager, uh, we always had two people count the money. In the church, we always have two people count the money. Not because we're afraid of anybody's going to steal money or anything like that, but because then you have a good witness. You have a good testimony. And the Bible talks about how two together are stronger than one. If the brother should fall, who will lift him up? The person with him, right? So if they went out casting out demons and they did healings, and one pair was Judas and another disciple... And the whole time they were gone, Jesus was never able to cast out a demon or do a healing. What do you think would have happened when they got back? The brother he was with would have come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, how come Judas could never cast out demons? How come Judas could never heal? Guess what? Judas could cast out demons and Judas could heal. In fact, Judas was so well trusted amongst the brethren, amongst the twelve disciples at least, and by Jesus, let's be fair, that he kept the money pouch. And in John 12, when the woman comes and she casts the perfume on Jesus' feet, she's wasting this expensive perfume. It's Judas that speaks up and says, this could have been sold for a bunch of money and given to the poor. And nobody thought that was bizarre because he kept the pouch. And that makes good sense, right? Let's be good stewards of what God has blessed us with. But John enters this little phrase in there. It says, but actually he was doing it because he kept the money pouch and he used to take what was in the money pouch. He was greedy and a thief. But now let's be clear. He was greedy and a thief who could cast out demons and heal the sick. But a powerful witness was telling people about Jesus. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So maybe we have a little different picture about Judas before we say how horrible he was because he was with them all the time and doing the same things that they were doing. The only thing that we know that he had wrong was there's only two things ever. And one of them I just told you about and the other one's in this verse. And one was he used to steal money from the pouch. He was greedy, covetous, a thief, right? But he was also a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And he was representing Jesus, and Jesus sent him out to represent him. You follow? I, I think about how Jesus, at that time when Jesus sent them out, he said to them, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things should be added unto you. In other words, don't be greedy or covetous. Don't take more than you need. Just take what you need, exactly, nothing more. Don't even take all that you need because wherever you go it should be provided for you, right? So he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things should be out unto you. Who do you think got hit by that the most? Judas. Because he was greedy and covetous and a thief. Right? I could just hear Judas saying, okay, we've got to divvy out the... If we're all going six different ways, we've got to divvy out the pouch. We need to buy enough bread and food. We need to take care of all... We don't have enough money to make sure this all gets done, Jesus. So let's... Let's get some more money together and then we'll get this... You know, let's, He's the finance person of the mission project. Right? And Jesus said, no, no. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things added shall be added unto you. It means you don't be greedy, you don't be covetous, and you don't worry about making sure you have enough up front. God will make sure you have enough in the long run. So it hit him. And yet he went out, following the same steps that they did. Of course, he had the pouch. So he, he could trust in the money to make sure that there would be the bread, 
Right? If somebody didn't take him in, he knew he was going to be okay because he had the pouch. So we see the struggle of the man Judas, and then we see in this verse, it says very plainly and clearly, and Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. So I, I'm going to submit to you that based simply on that verse, the betrayal of Jesus, and I use that word again intentionally, we'll come to it in a minute, the betrayal of Jesus it's not necessarily Judas's fault in this day. It's Satan's fault. Right? I mean, Satan entered into Judas. If Satan possesses a man and then the man goes and murders somebody, would you say it's the man's fault or Satan's fault? Well, on the surface, it looks like it would be Satan's fault. Right? Because Satan is evil and he's in control. He's making the man do or causing the man to feel whatever it is. Right? That's what it seems like. It says, and Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. That's really interesting. He was a disciple of Jesus who had done all of the things that the twelve had done. He had always been allowed to remain. And now Satan enters into him. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Now there is the word that the sermon is about today. Betray him. So Judas goes out and he discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him, that's Jesus, to them. How he might cause Jesus to come over under their control. So this word here in the Greek, this is that moment in time I warned you about, is paradidomi, or didomi, paradidomi. Okay? Paradidomi means to give someone or something over into the control of someone or something else. So when we think about being betrayed, I'll give you an example. Someone stole from you, okay? So they uh, had, they got access to your wallet, they took money out, they went and spent it. And they never told you about it. They stole from you. That's not the betrayal that we're talking about. That's thievery. It's still a sin. I'm not saying it's not a sin. But that doesn't actually turn you over to the control of anyone, Right? doesn't turn you over to control of poverty necessarily, unless literally every penny you own was in your wallet. And then if you truly are a follower of God, you still wouldn't be turned over to control of poverty because God can provide for you, right? So you trust in the Lord. It doesn't turn you over to Satan. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to Jesus. That's it. He's in control of your life. Right? It doesn't turn you over to you so that you now get to the decision to make what, what's going to happen next, Right? Does it not like that? No, because if you've turned yourself over to Jesus, then Jesus is still in control. So it doesn't literally turn you over to anyone. That betrayal, what we call a betrayal, doesn't actually do that. So betrayal here is a word to translate par, paradidomi is only a pretty good translation. There really isn't a good translation of that word into to a singlish, single English word. Right? And I went through all the Bible texts and they pretty much all translate the same way. And so I'm asking myself, well, what does it mean? So I look up the definition of betrayal at dictionary.com and there it is. It says to turn the control of something over to somebody else. And it's usually in a negative context. So if I, if I, um, brother Tim owes me a thousand dollars and he comes back to me and says, I want to pay you back your thousand dollars. Oh, you know, I, I'm glad that you could, wanted to do that. But actually, I sold that debt to Brother Perry. He owed, he has a thousand dollars. You owe him the thousand dollars now. Then I've given the debt over into the control of Brother Perry. And then when he goes to Brother Perry and he tries to pay back the debt, and, and Brother Perry says, I'm not going to take your thousand dollars. You got to work it off. I won't take the cash. You got to work it off. Now I have betrayed the confidence of Brother Tim and put him under the slavery, essentially, of Brother Perry. Now, he can say, no, that wasn't the agreement, so you take the $1,000 or leave it, which would take him out of the control of Brother Perry. You follow? So he says, no, I will not be under the control. I refuse to be under the control. So now, let's look and see what just happened then. Looking at the word from that way, Judas goes to the chief priests and the officers, and he is discussing with them how he might put Jesus over into their control. You follow? How they might get the chance to do what they want to do with Jesus because they are afraid of what? The crowd. Now, what did we say about the crowd? Can the crowd, or does the crowd, is the crowd needed to protect Jesus from them? No. Right? What did Jesus say about being crucified? He said, I lay down my life. The Father has given me the right to lay down my life so that I may take it up again. 
Right? So Jesus is going to be crucified, not because of Judas, not because of the Jews, not because of the Roman soldier who pounds in the spike, but because Jesus is allowing himself to be crucified. So when Judas betrays Jesus over to the hands of the, the high priest officers, the scribes, the Roman soldiers who are placed under their control, who is the one making the decision? Is it Judas? No. Is it Satan? No. It's Jesus, right? And we know that. But just the same as they've perverted the Passover, they've confused, instead of celebrating God's grace through the Passover, they're now worried about stopping Jesus from preaching and they're going to try to get control of Jesus and kill him so they can put an end to this once and for all. They have misconstrued who's in charge in the situation. And when I say they, I'm including Satan. Okay, So here is a plot, if you will, a contrived plot by Satan, the, high, the, the chief priests, the scribes, Sanhedrin, the soldiers, and Judas to turn Jesus over under the control of them so they can do what, their, what is their purpose. And that's what's actually happening here. The, the word para... Didomi means to turn over the control of someone into the control of someone else when it's taken in this context. Just two verses left. And they were glad. <laughs> They're like, oh, yes, we've got an insider. It's going to turn him over to us. Yes, they were glad and agreed to give him money. And he consented. Now there's his old friend motivator, money. Greed. The pursuit of money. And he consented and began seeking a good time, a good opportunity to betray, there is that word again, that to put Jesus over to betray him to them apart from the multitude, apart from the crowd. Okay. So there's a few things in here that you need to see. All right. Um, the first thing is, because this is about a multi multiplicity of betrayals. A multiplicity means a collection of many examples of the same thing. All right? <clears throat> Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. And we know he is the betrayer amongst the disciples. And on the night of Jesus' uh, at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus says, uh, John says, probably John, says, he's leaning back, it was either John or Peter, leaning back against Jesus, says, who, uh, who is the betrayer? And Jesus says, what's well, the one I give a sop to? He's going to dip some bread in the wine or juice or soup or broth or whatever, I forget what it was, or I'm not even sure what it says, but to dip it and then hand it to whoever I hand it to, that's the betrayer. Is that any who's he give it to? It's Judas. Jesus knew who the betrayer was amongst the disciples of the twelve. He knew who it was, as if Judas were wearing a name tag that says Judas, betrayer, on there. Jesus knew who it was. Jesus called him knowing who it would be. Jesus knows the hearts of men. And so he then says to Judas, go, go ahead, go do what you got to do. And the disciples all think he's talking to Judas about going to buy something, additional supplies, whatever, because Jesus was the keeper of the pouch. So they all think that. But actually he was saying, go ahead and go and betray me. And if I could take this out of context, it's almost just saying, Jesus saying, go ahead and betray me. I have something bigger that I'm going to do here. This is going to be bigger. right?" So Judas leaves, and then what does Jesus say? He says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And as he's glorified, he will glorify the Father. See, there was a plan in place. Jesus was never truly betrayed into the hands of anyone because he exactly did it. Now, does that mean that Judas is innocent? No, because in the literal sense, Jesus did everything within his power to betray Jesus over into their control, right? And so that's obviously sin. It's obviously an intentional choice not to do the right thing. And it was begun with intentional choices to take money out of the pouch. It began with the greed and the covetous nature of Judas, and now it continues, still couched in that same thing, because he's going to get money. He's going to get money for turning Jesus. So it's couched in that same thing. But we know that later he will look at that and he'll go, oh, this was really stupid, and he'll throw the money on the temple floor. And he says, blood money, he says, I betrayed Jesus, and, and they take the money and buy the potter's field with it, and he goes out and hangs himself, right? 
Because he realizes that he's never been true to that which he had ascended to, that which he said he was a part of. He was truly following Jesus. He realizes he's never truly been to that. And so in terrible remorse, he goes out and takes his own life. Now, that is not what you should do either, but this is what people do when they sin. They sin and they go, oh, that didn't work out. Let me sin some more on a bigger, grander scale and see if I can solve this problem. Right? Once you start on that road, you do it. That's what you do. So who was Judas betraying into the hands of Satan? Judas. Right? Now this is what's funny. And this is where it starts to get really sticky, so pay close attention. Every time you try to betray Jesus, who are you actually betraying into the hands of Satan? Yourself. That's the illustration of the whole thing. And so Judas betrayed himself into the hands of Satan. I thought he was betraying Jesus. And Satan thought he was betraying Jesus. Remember, it's the word when I say betray, I'm talking about paradidomi, that turning someone over. It's not betraying like betraying a trust or even tricking someone. It's betraying as turning them over into the control. So Judas thought he was turning Jesus over into the control of the chief priests and the scribes. And let's, let's be clear. Would that actually be all that bad of a thing? Now he knew that they wanted him dead, but they had to put him on trial first. And Jesus might turn the whole thing for his good or whatever. But it wasn't the right thing to do and Judas knew it and he was turning himself over into the control of Satan to do the wrong thing because of his greed and his covetous nature. Perhaps that's the only thing we really know that was wrong with him before this moment in time. He was a liar and a thief. Covetous. Greedy. Even though he was a disciple. Even though as a disciple, he could cast out evil spirits and demons. And as a disciple, he could miraculously heal people. There's only one case that we know of that's recorded in Scripture where the disciples failed to heal. And it doesn't say it was Judas. It says they all failed to heal or cast the demons out of this guy. And the guy says, uh, I brought him, my son to your disciples and, and they couldn't heal him. And they're like, well, Lord, we couldn't do it. And Jesus says, I got this. And he heals him and it's all good. And afterwards they say, well, why? And he said, well, you, you have so little faith. If you have faith, you say to this mountain, move, and it would be moved. And he said, but, and Jesus adds this kind of subtext, but this, come, this kind comes out by prayer and fasting. So if you prayer and fast, you can cast this evil spirit or demon out just like you did all of the others. So there's no, no calling out Judas as a slacker. They all suffered for this. And so... This is why Judas is such a scary character. And then I'll be done talking about him directly. Because he reminds us that amongst those who claim the name of Jesus might be those who would just as readily betray themselves into the hands of Satan in order to get ahead the way they want. And that's a scary thing. To wonder whether I could be a Judas... Now, remember, when I say betraying Jesus, I don't mean, I'm not just talking about sinning, even intentional sin, right? I'm talking about trying to usurp control over Jesus and give it into the hands of someone else. It's a pretty extreme thing that he was trying to do. He'd already stolen and could still be a disciple. He'd already coveted, practiced as a thief, and could still be a disciple. But now he would try to usurp the control of Jesus and put it in the hands of the leaders of the Jewish nation whom Jesus actually came to save. And in betraying Jesus, he actually betrayed himself into the hands of Satan. Okay, now here comes the hard part. Because Jesus was at the Last Supper and Jesus says to him, go ahead and do what you think you got to do. Go ahead and do it. Now, if Satan entered into Judas and was getting some control over Judas, uh, can't Jesus rebuke Satan? In fact, he said that to Peter, didn't he? He said, you know, if Satan's going to try to get control, sit you like wheat, and I've already prayed that it won't happen. Right? Can't Jesus intervene and save Judas even at that moment? Sure he could. Couldn't he have rebuked Satan when he went into Judas? Then what? No, because, not necessarily because Jesus could be, there's a variety of ways he could be betrayed, right? In fact, he says later, he says, but woe unto the man who is the one by whom, 
right? And he doesn't say Judas then, but he, he's talking about Judas, by whom he is betrayed. So a man will be betrayed, but woe unto the one who is betrayed be better than if he had never been born. That's what Jesus said about Judas. So he could, the point is, he could have stopped Satan right there in his tracks. He could have appealed to Judas again. He could have said, no, don't do what you plan to do. You're a fool. You're ruining your entire life, right? He could have done it. So let me say to you that actually what happens here is Jesus betrays Judas. Now, not betrays like lies about him, not betrays like tricks him or steals from him, but he's, he gives him over into the control of Satan. You follow? He allows that to happen. Sitting right there, there are three people in that conversation when Jesus says, go ahead and do what you think you got to do. There are three people in that conversation. Jesus, Judas, and Satan. Who is he talking to when he said, go ahead and do what you got to do? Judas or Satan? Well, if Satan was in charge, it was Satan. And if Judas was in charge, it was Judas. If Judas was in charge, he could have said, no, I'm not going to do it, and therefore he's guilty. And if Satan was in charge, then Judas, as a believer and a disciple, had already allowed that, and so he no longer has any control, and Satan thinks, yeah, I'm going to go betray Jesus into the hands. So the point is, whoever is in charge right there, Jesus betrays him. He says, no, you go. Do whatever you're going to do. Not betrays like undercuts them or tricks them like that, that, but he gives them full control. As if Jesus would say to you, you say, I don't want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care about Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. Stop coming to my house and talking to me about Jesus. Then you know what Jesus is going to say? Okay, then you can have control of your life. What are you going to do with it now? You can have control. What are you going to do with it now? And what do we always do with it? When we take it from Jesus and try to take control ourselves, we submit it in the hands of Satan. Right? So there is no other way. Either you're led by one or the other. People like to say that there is a fence in between, and I always say, yeah, there's a fence in between the properties of God and of Satan, and it happens to be built on Satan's property. So if you're on the fence, you're on his property. Because the fence is always built on, there is no, there is no width to the property line. It's an imaginary line. My property stops, yours, stop, yours begins. So the fence is built on somebody's property. And the people that are on the fence are on Satan's property. Not on God's property. If you won't be on God's property, then you're on Satan's property. And that's what we always do it. Just like Adam and Eve did. It's for all time. If we're not submitting it to God, we're submitting it to Satan. And so I say to you that in this instance, Jesus betrayed Judas into the control of Satan. Because even if Satan had gotten the control because Judas had allowed him to get the control, Jesus still could have rebuked him. And so he says, no. You submitted your control, the control into Satan, go ahead and do whatever it is that you have a purpose to do. Or Satan, go ahead, Judas submitted his control into you, go ahead and do whatever it is a purpose to do. And so the betrayal, if you will, in that sense, is Jesus saying, now you're in charge. Now before you say, that's, 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 that's tough to swallow, that's hard stuff right there. I want you to flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to say to you that we're about to read from a man who later learned from Jesus after being a betrayer himself and betraying the Christians regularly into the hands of punishers. He learns directly from Jesus. And then this is what he teaches to the Corinthian church about those who are wrapped up in immoral living and continuing, though they profess to be Christians, continuing in their sins. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. In other words, among you as Christians, it is reported to me, and I've received this report, that there is immorality, another ungodly living, intentional choices to live ungodly. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. That's a tough phrase right there, right? Have already judged him. As it is written elsewhere, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. But that's a tough phrase. I have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's read that one more time. 
I have decided to deliver, uh, there it is, by the way, the betrayal. Paul says, and I'll rephrase it for you, I will betray him into the hands of Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, if there is immorality amongst you, don't you realize that it's everyone's immorality? That's what he's saying. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, you can't keep being the old you, and you can't find new ways to sin against God after you've become saved. You can't do that. It becomes that the church is worthless if the church is full of the old nature. The kingdom of God is free from that. You are now free to choose otherwise, and you must submit your will to Jesus, not Satan. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, people who do things against God, right? Don't associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. In other words, I'm not saying you should walk away from drunkards or adulterers or liars or thieves. I didn't say that. That's not what I'm saying. Or with the covetous and the swindlers, or with idolaters, for when you would have, then you would have to go out of the world completely. And I added the word completely. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God, I'm sorry, those who are outside, God judges. And listen to this. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It's very clear. It's very clear. If a person professes to be a believer and continues in immoral actions, they are to be removed from the fellowship. Now, we understand Matthew 18 accountability, and we try to call them back a couple steps first. But ultimately, if that's what they're doing, they are to be removed from the fellowship. And, and there, in Matthew 18, it says, and then treat them like a sinner or a lost person. So you love on them, but you love on them in a way of saying, look, you need to come to Jesus. Because you may claim the name of Jesus, but you are living like you don't know Jesus. Jesus is not Lord of your life. You've committed your life not to Jesus, even though you say you have. You've committed it to Satan and to the flesh, and that won't do, and it can't be in the church, and it can't be the kingdom of God, not the way the Bible describes it. And Paul says, cast out the immoral brother. Judas was a disciple. He, was a, he claimed the name of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. He had cast out evil spirits and healings. He had preached and taught for Jesus. And Jesus, this same principle applied, says, you claim to be a disciple, but you have now submitted your life not to me, but to Satan. Get thee henceforth. Go out and do what you feel you have to do. But it has no part with what we are doing here. You say, well... But then Judas went and betrayed him into the hands. But was he given over into the control of the chief priests and the scribes? No, he was not in the control of the chief priests and scribes. There's an earlier instance where Jesus is confronted and they're going to stone him because, of the, because he was claiming to be God. Or Actually, I don't think it was that at that time, but he was, he was teaching some things they didn't like. And they were going to stone him. And it says, and he just walked away because it wasn't yet his time. And he'd have done it this time if it wasn't yet his time. But he has now declared it is his time. And so he allows himself to be put under arrest. He allows himself to be beaten and mocked and spit on. The crown of thorns, his clothes gambled for, the crucifixion. He allows all of that to happen. Judas didn't cause it. But if we follow the principles of 1 Corinthians 5, when Jesus puts him over to the hands of Satan, what winds up happening? Well, his flesh is destroyed. He commits suicide. And so where is Jesus, Judas almost certainly today? In heaven with God. Before you call him the betrayer, right? You, know, you understand, that attitude that Judas is a betrayer, if he was here, I'd smack him in the face today, or shoot dead myself, or kill him my savior, that attitude, that's the attitude of one Adolf Hitler. Who said he was killing the Jews because of their persecution of Christ. Anti-Semitism being against the Jews because they won't accept Christ? It's flat out wrong. 
Who are you? Are you God? Am I God? No. Okay. So, Judas betrays Jesus, or thinks he does anyway, into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus betrays Judas into the hands of Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his soul can be saved, if that's what actually happened. If he was saved, if he was a believer in the Lord, he was saved. His body was destroyed, but he was saved. And then the third thing happens. The chief priests and the scribes accept control of Jesus and they do everything in their power with the false trial and all that. We'll talk a little bit about that in the next couple of weeks. To betray Jesus into the hands of what? Not a who, necessarily, although it's often pictured that way. Death. Right? They see death, and this is their foolish nature, they see death as control of a man. That death could have control of a human being. That a human being could be put to death and ends their, their ministry, ends their work, ends everything. Right? So they want to put him to death. Their whole point, it says, as they were approaching the Passover, their whole desire was to kill him, and they wanted to stop the public teaching. Can you stop God teaching? No! What fools are we? After God sent ten plagues on Egypt, and we're celebrating the worst of those ten, as it freed us from Egypt, ancestrally, but freed us from Egypt, we're going to think that we can stop God from doing what God wants to do. And so the chief priests and the scribes, the Sanhedrin, tries to betray Jesus into the hands of the soldiers, into the hands of death. Right? They want to betray him. They want to turn him over and put him under the control of death. And it goes exactly the way God has prophesied it will go. It goes exactly the way God has shown us, and that is that Jesus defeats death. He's turned over into the hands of death, but rather than being put to death, he's put to eternal life. His flesh is destroyed and he's resurrected on the third day with the resurrection body, which has aspects of flesh, but also has aspects of the renewal of God. So now he walks through walls, but he can still eat. He still has the scars as testimony that he's still the same person, but and they can touch him and feel the scars, but he's renewed, regenerated, complete and perfect in God. So they thought they betrayed him over in the hands of death and he's Squishes death out of hand. Proving that death will once and for all have no more sting, no more control. They want to betray him over to death, but ironically, they are betraying death over into the hands of its conqueror. Which has been forecast for a long time. These folks were dead in their sin because they had not trusted in Christ. They were an ally to death. They were enthralled by death believing in its supposedly unfailing power to conquer any man. Which is not at all what death is. It's not at all what death is. So there was a multiplicity of betrayal here, and I could have gone into other aspects of the betrayal. But somehow or other, Judas, through continuing to tarry with his sin and being immoral even inside the disciples, betrayed himself over into the control of Satan. Jesus, and then Judas tried to betray Jesus over in the hands of them. Of course, he really didn't have the ability to do that. Jesus betrayed Judas over into the hands of Satan. And if we understand it correctly, as we read 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus did that so that his soul could be saved. Hopefully it was. And then the Sanhedrin, who worship death and were part of death, enthralled by death and believing in it supposedly as the unfailing power, betrayed death over into the hands of Jesus. There's a multiplicity of betrayal. There's a lot of giving over there. What is our response? By way of conclusion, what are we supposed to do? You have one life. In Psalm 8, it says that God put in babes and nursing babes the ability to make the enemy cease. It doesn't say Christians. It says that God put... Let's go there and read it real quick. I want you to see it. This is our conclusion, and then we're done. Okay? I hadn't planned on it, but we're not too long on the time. We'll just go there and read it. Go to Psalm 8. 
Almost there. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine enemies to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Who has the power to stop Satan? Humans. Not just Christians. Humans. So if that's true, then what do you have to do? Well, you say, initially, you say, I want to stop Satan. That just makes sense, right? He's an adversary. He's an accuser. He's father of lies, etc. Except that we have this sort of sinful nature ourselves, and so we kind of like some of the things that he does and the way we get ahead. Like we kind of, it's like he's slipping into a warm bath, you know? Now, it's a warm bath that will drown you, but it feels good at first, right? And so we're not, we're not quick in our flesh to do that. But so then, what actually are we supposed to do? We have to make a choice. This is what you have to do. You have to betray yourself into the hands of either Jesus or Satan. You have to make a choice. You have to say, in order for this power to have an eternal nature, in order for this power to transcend death, I have to put my life into the hands of the one who conquered death, which is Jesus. That's what salvation is all about. We declare him as Lord and Savior. We see the image of him crucified and the image of his resurrection as testimony to our ability to have life after death. Do you want to die? Guess what? No choice on your part. We all die. And then the judgment. What do you want the judgment to be? Do you convey your life into the hands of Satan, as Judas apparently did? And if so, and this hurts, God's okay with that. It's heartbreaking, but he's not going to just crumble and die because you refuse him. Or are you going to betray your your life into the hands of the God of the universe who will take you beyond death into eternal life? and live with you and in you daily now, and seal you up so that something like what happened to Judas will not happen to you, will not happen to me. Death is forever defeated, yet the dying is still going on. But once Jesus comes again, there will be no more of that either. So for now, why? Why let it continue? Because God is patient with us that all men might come to repentance. What is repentance again? Oh wait, there's that Bible word. We read it all over. What is repentance? It means to turn to God. So, back to this task. What do we have to do? We've been given the power to make Satan cease. What do we have to do? We have to turn to God. Because God is the only one who can preserve that power in us. If you turn to Satan, here's what God will do. God will say, stupid choice, but go ahead and do what you think you got to do. I can't, I cannot, will not make you do anything. I can't make you love me back. I can't make you live in a relationship with me. I will not robot you. I will not steal your free will. If you choose Satan over me, then so be it. Now, we have one problem left, don't we? Because our best understanding is that Jesus had chosen Judas as a disciple, that he had come to follow Jesus, that he had heard and believed many of the things that Jesus had taught, that he cast out demons and evil spirits. And so that only leaves us in one of two places in the case of Judas. Either he was that guy in Matthew 7, 1, who failed to say, Lord, who said, Lord, Lord, but didn't actually have Jesus as Lord, in which case he's in hell for eternity and will never meet him. If you're following the Lord Jesus. Or he had actually cried out to Jesus the Lord, had actually been saved, but had continued to tarry in immorality. And because he was messing around with the money in the pouch, because of his greediness and his covetousness and his sinful nature, that he wasn't willing to just let it go, Jesus commended him even, placed him even under the control of Satan. Don't kid yourself. Ultimately, it is God. Ultimately, it is God who decides we'll be saved. Ultimately, it is God who gives grace. Ultimately, it is God who casts out sin. Ultimately, it is God who commends anybody into the hands. He said, two, two sons were born, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He said, oh, God hated it. I didn't. <laughs> he put the word in the text. I didn't put it there. It doesn't mean he literally hated him. It means he made a choice between them. And when you were born, two men were born, or two women. One that chooses God, and one that chooses Satan. Having chosen God through Jesus Christ, you have the ability then to continue to choose him, or you can delve into immorality. 
And this hurts. But the truth is, if you continue to delve into immorality after you have chosen Christ, then I am commanded to let you go. As is every brother and every sister in Christ. Not because we don't love you. Not because we desire to betray you into the hands of Satan, but because by betraying you into the hands of Satan, your flesh may be destroyed and your soul may transcend this life. It's time we started thinking about how more is at stake here than whether someone said or did one thing that was right or wrong. Jesus never sinned. Since then, there's never been a man who never sinned. We all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we don't walk around judging people. But when someone's in the church, when someone's in the kingdom, and they're in immorality, they're continuing with their immorality. Yes, we judge them. Not judging whether they're saved or not, that's not our job. But we judge the action and we say, that can't be here amongst God's people, and we let them go. It's the right thing to do. And I know it. Not because Paul told me to do it, but because Jesus did it. Let's pray together at this time and then we'll have a hymn of invitation and we'll be concluding our services together today.